Let's turn to the Word now, the Word of our God. First of all, Daniel 7, 9 through 14. This is one of those passages we come back to a lot as we as we are we've seen it a lot coming through Matthew's gospel together because so so much of the time Jesus uses those words to describe himself that he's the great son of man those words harken back especially to Daniel 7 here where we see the prophecy about the one who is like a son of man and yet has all the glory of God and who has this everlasting kingdom given to him Let's read Daniel 7, verses 9 through 14. This is the word of our God. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain, and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought Him near before Him. Then to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Our New Testament text Matthew 26, verses 47 through 68. Matthew 46, uh, excuse me, 26, verses 47 through 68. While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? And they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father and He will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? How then could the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done, that the Scriptures of the prophets might be 
fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard. And he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard it, heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He is deserving of death. Then they spat in his face and beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray. Lord our God, thank you that you have given us your most holy word, where you lay out for us with such clarity and sufficiency the gospel of our Savior. We pray that you would indeed speak your word of life that you would give us life, give us faith in Christ. Let not our hearts be hardened against your word. Let us be attentive to receive from you, from your very mouth, your truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever been punished for something that you didn't do? Or at least you didn't think you deserved to be punished for it? There's a particular instance that sticks in my mind from first grade. Um, Mrs. Anderson was the teacher. She was a good teacher, uh, but I still remember this, this, uh, this thing she did against me. Um, there I was. The rule in the class was don't talk without raising your hand. And if you do talk, there's a little red chair up at the front, kind of off to the side, but still up to the front. And you're going to sit in that chair for five eternal minutes in front of the whole class. And, um, so this was my first year in school, first grade, and I was terrified of, of having to sit in that chair. And so I kept my mouth shut. Uh, I only raised my hand once in a while. Uh, I never talked out of turn. But then once, a friend turned to me. This is where my memory gets a little fuzzy. Uh, maybe it's my own denial. But, but in my mind, I don't think I said anything. A friend turned to me during class and started talking to me. And, and, and I might have said something, might have whispered something back. I don't remember exactly. I think I probably didn't say anything. But Mrs. Anderson thought I did. She didn't notice my friend say anything. She thought I had said it. So I had to march up to the front and sit in the red chair. And my little heart was 
protesting the whole way up. This isn't fair. I did not deserve this. I did nothing wrong. And I, and I, 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 I wanted everyone to know that I had not done anything wrong. I was, I was suffering for something that I had not done. This isn't what I deserve. Now, it's a, it's a silly example. But that, that's our hearts, loved ones. That's our hearts so much of the time, even when we do deserve something. Our hearts are still protesting. Uh, it's not fair. I don't deserve to be treated this way. I don't deserve to suffer in this way. I don't deserve to be treated this way. I deserve credit, not blame. Um, that is so much of the time. That is so much of the time how we feel. Here in the text before us, we see our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is, as he says, the Son of Man, the glorious God of heaven come down incarnate in, 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 in human form to reign as the Messiah King over his people forever. To him be all glory, praise, honor, and adoration forever. That's what he's worthy of. But he humbles himself to suffer what he does not deserve. In the passage before us, we see just, uh, just offense against, after offense after offense against Jesus. And he doesn't deserve any of it. In fact, he deserves the total opposite of everything he receives in this passage. And yet, he takes it all patiently, submissively, willingly, sovereignly choosing it. Because this is the way God has said that his people will be saved. That, 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 that's, our, that's our text this morning, Jesus, who deserves all glory, willingly humbles himself to suffer all shame for the sake of his people in obedience to his Father. Three, three points this morning as we work through the text here. Number one, Jesus humbled himself to suffer betrayal and arrest. Jesus humbled himself to suffer betrayal and arrest. This is verses 47 through 56. Um, We've already been looking a little bit. We've seen Jesus has predicted his betrayal, but now in verse 47, uh, the moment of the bitter betrayal is finally here. Remember last week, Jesus has just finished praying. He gets up from praying to his Father, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And then he goes to his disciples. He says, get up. My betrayer is at hand. He can probably hear the mob as they're marching up through, uh, through, through, through the olive groves towards where he is. You can probably see the flicker of their red torches in the dark night. He, know, he knows they're almost here. And then they, they come in to where the disciples are in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Judas is at their head. And they've got swords and they've got clubs. And they're here to take Jesus by force. As we see this, Matthew, as, he, as he's telling us the story, he, he wants us to, 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 to not gloss over Judas's betrayal. We all, we all know the story. But, but he wants us to feel the betrayal as we read it. He highlights who it is who betrays Jesus. Verse 47, he says, Judas came. One of the twelve. We all know Judas is one of the twelve. He's been one of the twelve for most of the Gospel of Matthew. He's, he's been around. We, we, we know Judas. We don't need Matthew to say he's one of the twelve. Why is he saying this here? Well, he wants us to remind us of the, the horror of Jesus' betrayal. It is not some mere acquaintance. So, so, 
one of the outer disciples, one of the 70 who were sent out, or, or, or one of the people who like to follow Jesus and listen to him. This isn't someone who is, who is on the edge. This is someone who had the very closest friendship with Jesus. Someone who Jesus counted as a friend, and someone who had the, the closest possible access to Jesus. Think about the privileges that Judas enjoyed, brothers and sisters. He spent three years right next to Jesus hearing Him teach and watching Him heal and calm the storm and cast out demons and raise the dead. And just before this, they were celebrating the Passover together like a family. And, and Jesus gets down and He washes the disciples' feet and He washes Judas's feet. And He loves him. And, and now here He is. Here He is betraying Jesus. Judas was one of the twelve. It's a horrible betrayal. It's horrible also. Jesus has picked out his 12 disciples. Why, why 12? Well, it, it, he, this is the new Israel. Israel renewed, right? The 12 tribes. Now we have 12 disciples. Jesus, I will build my ecclesia, my congregation, my church, my people on this foundation of the 12 disciples. But now one of those foundations is giving away. He's supposed to be a foundation of this new people of God, and he's betraying the Messiah. It's not just painful, though, that the way, the way that, that Judas betrays him, uh, excuse me, it's not just painful it, who betrays Jesus, but also the way Judas betrays Jesus. He comes up to Jesus, and he doesn't just outright, he doesn't, he doesn't curse him out, doesn't, doesn't, he's not angry towards Jesus. He shows these, he, he displays affection, but, it, but it's so hollow. Um, he comes up to Jesus. He'd already told the crowd, the mob coming with him to arrest Jesus, that he's going to kiss the one that they would need to arrest. We might think, wouldn't they recognize Jesus? Well, in those days, you didn't have pictures circulating of famous people. You might not recognize him. It's dark at night. You could easily mistake him for someone else. Uh, so Judas says, I'll, I'll let you know who he is. How? I'll kiss him. Sign of familiar friendship. He goes up to Jesus. The audacity of his sin is just astounding. He goes right up to his Lord Jesus. And first he speaks. He says, Greetings, Rabbi. That word greetings means joy to you. Peace to you. And he calls him Rabbi. Teacher. Judas has ignored and rejected every word Jesus ever spoke. He does not wish him peace. He does not see him as his teacher, but he comes up, greetings, teacher. He's full of, full of mockery, an empty display. And then he puts his cheek on the cheek of Jesus. He kisses him. Psalm 2 says, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Right, submit, bow to the king. Show him your fealty and your honor with a kiss. Here Judas is doing the opposite, isn't he? He's showing him his dishonor and his betrayal with a kiss. What does Jesus deserve from Judas and from all his people? He deserves loyalty like no one else deserves loyalty. Jesus deserves such perfect friendship 
from Judas and perfect faithfulness from Judas. He's never done anything wrong to Judas. He's loved him perfectly, but Judas, instead of that loyalty that Jesus deserves, gives him the most horrible betrayal. How would you respond? Someone that you loved and cared about did that to you. How does Jesus respond? It's astounding. Friend. He doesn't say, enemy. Judas, you traitor. Judas, you sinner. Friend. It's an interesting word. It's not the word he uses for his disciples in John 15, 15, when he says, I call you friends. It's not, it's not a term for intimate friendship. It's a word you might use when you are being kind and polite to someone. You might not know their name, someone who's an acquaintance, perhaps. Hi, friend. Um, that sort of thing. Uh, it's used elsewhere in Matthew's Gospel. It's used in chapter 20, verse 13. In, a, in the parable where the master hires some servants to work in his vineyard, and some of them work long shifts and don't get paid uh, get, get paid for what they agreed to work for, but they get paid the equal of those who work short shifts, and they're upset, and they come to Jesus, the, the master in the parable, and they're complaining, and the master says, it's mine to give, it's all of grace, receive it. And, uh, and, and in that parable, the master calls those servants who are grumbling and complaining, not faithful, loyal, grateful servants. He calls them friend. Same word that's used here. Jesus used it again in another parable, the parable of the, the, the wedding feast where the king invites all these people to his son's wedding. And one comes in on the outside, apparently wants to come to the wedding, but he's not wearing the right wedding garment. And the, the king comes up to him and says, friend, same word, where's your wedding garment? What, what's Jesus doing with this word? He's saying, Judas, yeah, you're, you've got this empty display, and it's always been an empty display of faith and affection. But listen to the warning. I think, I think he's giving him a final appeal, a final warning. It's a word not of animosity, not of hatred. A sense of grief, I think, is in it. A sense of longing that Judas would repent. This is how Jesus responds. Then he says to him, Why have you come? Uh, the Greek there is, 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 uh, is ambiguous. It could also be translated as, as do what you've come to do. It literally just reads what you came to do, which you could take as a question. What did you come to do? Why have you come? Or you could take it as a command. Do what you came to do. Um, it could go either way. I think given the context, I think that it's uh, Jesus is saying, as some other translations take it, do what you came to do. Showing that he's not surprised by Judas's actions, but, but he, is, he is fully aware of, of, of his actions. He's not, he's not surprised that Judas is betraying him. He knew he was going to betray him. Uh, we see this in John's Gospel, where as they're eating together at the supper, uh, Jesus says to Judas, what you have to do, do quickly, and Judas goes out. Uh, Jesus here is, is, uh, is, is uh, accepting this betrayal. He's accepting that God has set this for him. It's not what he deserves. But he's accepting that this is what he has come to do. It's clear here that he understands that he's not dying by accident. He's not been betrayed by accident. Uh, it's not something he's trying to avoid. He is fully accepting his, his mission. Um, uh, and it's only when he says to Judas... 
do what you came to do, that he's arrested. That's when they come forward. Jesus is in charge of his own arrest. This wonderful choice of Jesus to go forward with this suffering that's laid out before him. Uh, go, go ahead, he says. Go ahead and, and arrest me now and betray me now. Not all the disciples are on board with this, of course. We see Peter. Uh, his name's not given here. It's given in another gospel. But Peter takes out his sword. Uh, this isn't what he wanted from Jesus. He wanted a Messiah who would fight to the end. Uh, uh, so, so here he is. He tries to defend Jesus. He cuts off the ear of one of the servants of the high priest who's come to arrest Jesus. Jesus stops it immediately. And he reminds him, he gives him this truth that those who live by the sword die by the sword. And then he reminds him, verse 53 of this, he says, Do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How much is a legion? A uh, Roman legion was about 6,000 troops. So Jesus is talking about more than 12 legions of angels. Uh, that, that's a lot of angels. I think it's around 72,000 angels. What, what does one angel do when he shows up in judgment in the Old Testament? Two of them destroy, come to Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Um, one of them... The angel of the Lord in 2 Kings strikes down 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. Jesus says, Peter, there are more than 12 legions of angels. If I gave the word, they would appear in this instant, and we would have nothing to fear. A legion for each of us. What's the point here? Jesus is saying that, that, that he has all authority in this moment. That at any point, if he wanted to, he could stop being betrayed, stop being arrested, and stop going to the cross. So it's, it's his continual choice to continue to suffer for our sakes. He is choosing the road of betrayal and arrest, the last things he deserves. It goes on, as, as, as we move on now from, from his betrayal and arrest into the next section of the text. He continues to do this. He continues to choose the humiliation that he's been called to. This is our second point. Jesus humbled himself to suffer lies, blasphemy, and mockery. Verses 57 through 68. This section shows us even more Jesus receiving what he does not deserve. It, it highlights it for us even more than the previous one, um, and that he continues to do it willingly. The, 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 the section here starts with Caiaphas. So the mob arrests Jesus. They take him to the house of the high priest. The high priest has this sizable courtyard at his house, and they, they hold this, this nighttime trial there in the courtyard of Caiaphas, the high priest. They want to put Jesus to death. There's, there's irony just everywhere here. The priests are trying to put God on trial. Um, the priest's whole job is to serve and honor the Lord and to lead the people in serving and honoring the Lord. But they're doing the exact opposite of it. Jesus deserves them to fall on their faces before him in worship and service and awe. These are his priests who serve in his temple. But they are just obsessed with destroying him and bringing him down. 
they, uh, they try to do this by finding some way to accuse Jesus of wrongdoing. That's a hard job when he is the innocent one and the perfectly righteous one. They have to make something up to get anything to stick worthy of death. Um, they, uh, they, 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 they get people together who are willing to, to lie about a t- and give false testimony, but they can't get anyone to agree on, on what they saw. Uh, there, there's another irony here. It's a, the law said you had to have two witnesses in order to put someone to death, two witnesses to a capital offense to kill someone. And so they're being fastidious to find two witnesses to keep that little part of the law, but they're breaking the Ninth Commandment, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. They're breaking the Sixth Commandment, you shall not kill. They're breaking the First Commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, the greatest commandment. They're breaking, they're breaking the whole law as they're trying to keep this one little tittle of the law. This is the law that Jesus himself gave them as the Son of God. He gave the law at Mount Sinai to his people, and they are breaking, twisting, hijacking God's law for their own ends. But they do come up with two witnesses who agree, finally. And these witnesses agree on this point, that Jesus said he would destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. They bring this charge against him. To them, it would be a capital offense because the temple is the holy dwelling place of God. It represents God. And so they call it blasphemy. Um, Jesus, of course, is the temple. The temple was never permanent. It was always pointing to him, the God with us, God-man. But uh, the priests have completely rejected this. And so they press the question on Jesus. What's your answer, Jesus? Jesus stays silent. Um, Isaiah 53, 7 says that he is the one who is oppressed and afflicted, but opens not his mouth. Jesus knows they're trying to trap him and twist things he said to, to bring a charge against him. He's going to accept the penalty they, 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 they pass on him, the verdict they give, but he himself is, is not going to go along with, with these lies. So the high priest presses, presses harder. Um, listen, to the, listen to the priest's words, verse 60. Uh, uh, 63. I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Pay attention again to, to the irony. <laughs> who is putting who under oath? <laughs> who is saying, I put you under oath by the living God? Jesus is the living God. And the priest is saying, You better answer this question. You better answer my question. I put you under oath of the living God. But Jesus does answer, verse 64, it is as you said. He admits, he acknowledges, not admits, he acknowledges that he is the Christ. But the priest's idea of the Christ is pretty messed up. The priest thinks the Christ is supposed to be one who's a political hero of some kind. And that's not at all what Jesus came to do. And so Jesus says, yes, I am the Christ, but not the kind of Christ you're expecting. Let me tell you what kind of Christ I am. And then he goes on and he says, he's the Son of Man. And he says, I say to you, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Think think back to Daniel 7. That's what Jesus is, is referencing. Daniel 7, which we read earlier about this Son of Man who will come on the clouds of heaven to judge the world and whose kingdom will, will, will last forever. Jesus is saying, that's who I am. The most blessed and glorious 
King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who deserves all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, obedience, reverence. You should fall down on your faces and worship before Him. Jesus says it right to the priest there. I am the Son of Man. You owe me. You owe me all your worship. They give Him their hatred instead. They accuse Him of blasphemy. Again, they're the ones committing blasphemy. Blasphemy is when you dishonor God, you dishonor His person, you dishonor His name. Jesus has never dishonored God. He is the only one in the whole history of the world who's always reverenced and honored God. And what are they doing? They're accusing Him falsely, and they're, they're abusing Him and making lies about Him, and striking Him, and slapping Him, and beating Him, and spitting in His face, and calling Him a blasphemer. They're doing it to God. And they're accusing Him of blasphemy. They make, they make a game out of it. They, they put a blindfold on His face, we're told in one of the other Gospels. And they slap Him. And they say, prophesy to us, Christ, who struck you? Loved ones, with every single blow, our Lord Jesus could have stopped it. Um, Twelve legions of angels, right? Could have been there. He is the one, as we uh, heard earlier from Hebrews chapter 1, who upholds the universe by the word of His power. He is absolutely sovereign in this moment, even as they spit in His face and slap Him and they heap insults on Him. He embraces it. He doesn't, he doesn't flinch away, pull away. He suffers all of it. He lets it all happen to Him. He, he takes it all. He embraces this humiliation and this suffering and judgment from them. Now, if you and I are in a situation where we are in something difficult and we have the ability to get out of it, do we ever say no? Pretty rarely, I guess. But if we're in something painful and difficult and we're in this spot of suffering and it, it, there's, a, there's, a, there's a way out, aren't you likely going to take it? But our Lord Jesus continues to be faithful. Take, take this to heart, brothers and sisters. The, 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 the commitment of Jesus, the faithfulness of Jesus to humble Himself, as Philippians 2 tells us. He is taking all of this very willingly. He's embracing it for our sakes. He is, he is such a faithful Savior. But why, why is he so committed to suffering what he does not deserve? We've seen now these, both these points. Jesus embraces humiliation and suffering that he does not deserve. Why? That's what I want to look at now, our third point. Jesus humbled himself because it was God's will to save you. This is our third point. Jesus humbled himself because it was God's will to save you. The, the answer that Jesus gives us as to why he is going through with all this is in verse 54 and then again in verse 56. He says back in verse 54 to Peter not to resist his arrest because the Scriptures must be fulfilled. And then he says it again to the mob who has come to arrest him in verse 56. All this was done that the Scriptures of the prophets might 
be fulfilled, we are, we are told there. Over and over again in Matthew's Gospel, fulfillment of Scripture has been a, a huge theme. Uh, Matthew's been trying to show us from chapter 1, verse 22, all the way on, that Christ is fulfilling the Scriptures, that He was uh, conceived of a virgin to fulfill the Scriptures, that He uh, went down to Egypt and then was brought back to fulfill the Scriptures, that He went to live in Nazareth to fulfill the Scriptures, that He went in, uh, out to Galilee to minister to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets. Matthew's Gospel is showing us that the, the, the Old Testament is the first act of a two-act play, and it's not fulfilled, it's not finished until Christ comes and finishes it. And, and so Jesus is saying, all this is happening to fulfill God's will. To fulfill God's will. Judas and his betrayal was because of God's will. The mob arresting him, God's will. The disciples, disciples scattering was God's will. The chief priests and the elders accusing him and beating him is God's will. They're all, they're all doing it inadvertently, fulfilling God's promises in Scripture and God's sovereign plan. And Jesus himself, right, he's continued to give himself, not my will, but yours be done, continued to follow the mission that God has set out for him. And that mission is a mission of suffering. And that, that's why he's going on in this. That's why he's continuing to embrace the suffering God has called him to, because it's the will of God to do it. Loved ones, we need, to, we need to see this. Isaiah 53.10 says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. God puts him to grief. Ultimately, Jesus is not suffering because of Judas. Yes, Judas is sinning against him, but Jesus' suffering is not ultimately because of Judas or the mob coming to arrest him or his disciples abandoning him or the chief priests or ultimately the, the, you know, the Romans crucifying him. It's not them putting Jesus to death. It's God, his Father, willing that all this would happen. It's an unspeakable wonder, loved ones, why would the Father, who has loved the Son with a perfect love for all eternity, crush Him? Would you do that to your Son, whom you love so much less than God loves His Son? No, no, you, you never would. Why, why would God put His beloved Son, who has only ever honored Him, why would He put Him through this? Why is it God's will to crush Him? the one who deserves eternal glory, and give him a death sentence. The answer is you. It's for you. Jesus suffers for us. And God gives him to suffering for us. Because you are under a death sentence. The wrath of God. Everything Jesus goes through here, we deserved. All of it. The, the, the accusations of blasphemy. You and I deserve those. The, the, the beating, the, 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 the judgment, the, the, all, all things that happen here. We, we are sinners deserving of death. That is the verdict over our, over our lives. But we don't receive any of it. Instead, our Lord Jesus receives all of it. 
And he does it. He does it for us. He does it to take what we deserved and and, and to and to suffer in our place, so that we don't ever experience the wrath of God. Isaiah fifty three says it so well. It says, "Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace." And with his wounds, we are healed. He deserves heaven, but for us, he embraces hell and goes through it all to save us from it. That's what we see in this text. Let me just close now with a few words of application. The first is this. If Christ willingly surrendered to suffer what you deserved, if, if he surrendered what was owed to him, the glory and honor owed to him, to suffer for your sake, then you will never have to suffer what you deserve to suffer. You will never, ever experience the wrath of God. You will be, as a Christian, under the discipline of God and go through difficult circumstances, but you are not under a death sentence because Christ took it for you. You do not deserve anymore the wrath of God. He has made you worthy of the Father's love. He's, taking, he's, he's, taken, he's taken what you deserved on Himself so that you'll never, ever, ever experience what you deserve. On the contrary, the second thing here, you'll experience what Christ deserved. What does He deserve? The reward of His Father. And as we'll see later on in Matthew, God raises Him up and gives Him that rich reward. But, but you and I, we don't go through the wrath of God to get that reward. Christ went through the wrath of God so that we could have that reward by His grace. And finally this, loved ones. If Christ willingly humbled Himself to suffer for you, and if the Father willingly gave His Son over to suffer for you, then you can have complete confidence that He is committed to saving you. And when you find yourself doubting His love, unsure of His commitment, of His promises, thinking that He saved you begrudgingly, that He did it, but He wished He didn't have to do it, look here and see His commitment and His unwavering faithfulness to His Father and the Father's design out of His love to save you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for all that You have done for us in our Lord Jesus, that You so loved us that You gave Your only Son, to be the Savior for us. We pray that you would strengthen our faith and fix our eyes on Him. We pray it in His name. Amen.